It's our regular question and answer episode where we respond to your questions and feedback. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 534. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders are born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Every couple months, we open up the show to respond to your questions and feedback. If you have a question you'd like us to consider for a future Q&A episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com feedback. That is the very best way to get it in front of us. And I am joined today by my best friend, as I often am. Bonnie Stahoviak is back with me. Hello, Bonnie. Hey, Dave, it is great to be back from our camping experience. Now, when I say the word camping, you have to picture me using air quotes because it felt kind of unlike camping, but the fun parts of camping. I had a great time with you and with the kids, and I feel renewed and excited about being here today to tackle these questions. Me too. It is interesting in a long-term relationship how you do come to the center on some things. Uh, I was the person who loved camping and you were the person who did not like camping. And I have come more to a place where I'm like, you know, if you show up somewhere and the bed is actually there and made and you don't have to build your structure when you arrive, that's nice. And you also have come to a place of like, yeah, you know, maybe do a little bit more outside kind of thing. It's kind of kind of meeting in the middle, huh? I liked it. It yeah. was fun. Yeah, me too. Me too. Well, let's uh, let's tackle a number of questions that have come in. We've had a whole bunch come in in the last few weeks while we were <laughs> camping, in air quotes. So, uh, uh, Just as a side note, we were not camping for weeks. We were camping for three days. But, but yeah, okay, yes, well, please proceed. <laughs> there's that. I still got a lot of email <laughs> in those three days. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's go into our first question here from Mark. So Mark reached out and said, I listened to How to Manage Former Peers with Tom Henschel and absolutely loved that episode. I'll link to it in the notes. But I'm wondering about the step before that. If two coworkers in a small team are doing well, but promotions are rare, what do you do if you've got a more experienced colleague who you suspect doesn't want you to jump ahead of them and is making it difficult for you to succeed. I suspect they wouldn't respond well to me in a leadership role because they're older and consider themselves superior to me, but my projects have been more successful in the recent past. My current approach is to keep doing what I'm doing and get on with the good work I'm delivering and let it speak for itself. I considered engaging them in a discussion about it, but in the past they've been really spiky and have started giving me advice most of which is quite poor and seems to come from a place that's a bit negative or anxious. So I don't think that's an option here. It's a difficult position, but not unique, I'm sure. Would be super grateful for any help or resources I should look into. My favorite word there is spiky, Bonnie. Mm. I think that's a good word word to describe this person from the context. Well, I'll let you start. What do you think? Well, I would concur that this kind of a conversation would probably not be helpful to you. So I think that you're right to the expression goes, you know, keep your head down, focus on achieving results, focus on working well with others. Some of the hardest relationships that we can have in organizations are the ones with our peers, because those are oftentimes the ones where we have to rely on influence and good, healthy communication skills. When 
we're often referring to the person we report to. Sometimes it's kind of that person gets to have more of the power dynamic. And sometimes we embrace as leaders that we have more of the power dynamic. So this is the kinds of relationships that will help us exercise our greatest leadership skills. And I did want to mention that last time I was on a Q&A episode, I kept talking about that I had recommended this book a bazillion times called The First 90 Days and had never read it, which is not something I tend to do very often. I actually now have read the book because I have someone joining our organization and wanted to sort of read it for him, although I didn't even tell you this, Dave, but he also bought it and has read it too. So we're both going to be- Oh, that's fine. Definitely on the same page. But one of the things the book talks about is to be thinking about the context in which you will be leading. And it's got a little assessment and it's got some different ways that you might handle. For example, are you coming into a situation of a turnaround or are you coming into a situation where you're supposed to maintain or uh, I think there's four or five different archetypes that they describe in the book. And I think that would be really helpful for you to be thinking about the context in which you lead. Are you as a leader expected to really push the envelope, change the status quo, or is it more maintenance that's valued and embraced in your particular function and at your organization? So thinking through those things. And so I'd suggest picking up the book. I think it's good to have on your bookshelf for any time you might make a transition, but I'd even recommend reading it before you make one. I'm not planning on making any leadership transitions anytime soon, but I can tell you that I really valued the lessons in the book, even though I'm not planning on doing that. So it's a good read and something to think through as you think about the context. But I do think that you are wise to not try to talk about something that may or may not happen in advance of it happening with someone who's not really excited. One final thought I would leave you with is that I have found in friendships, in work politics, in all kinds of contexts, whenever I find myself getting focused on competition, It doesn't tend to bear out the greatest results. If we are truly leaders, we're able to draw out people's strengths and experience something known as synergy, where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And if you find yourself having a competitive mindset around this person, will he or she get the promotion before I do those kinds of things? It's not going to really frame the situation very well. But if you can think through what are this person's strengths, what are mine, how might we work together toward achieving aims? I know this is difficult to do, by the way, especially with spiky people. (laughs) But, But just to be thinking about what are you allowing yourself to focus on? Are you spending the time thinking about the ways in which you're in competition with this person for future jobs? Or are you thinking about how could you as a leader, and yes, you can lead your peers, by the way, as a leader, bringing out this person's greatest strengths and collaborating. So focusing more on collaboration. And by the way, if it's not that person, let's not then let that person be that big. I suspect you probably have other peers too. And then allowing your brain to focus more on opportunities to collaborate 
especially whenever we have the opportunity to do that with people that are in other functions that are different from ours and all the ways that that can expand our learning in an organization. You know, I was mentioning Dave and I going camping and I was actually teaching our son about this and that we were holding up a glass uh, just because that was the prop that was nearby and saying, what happens to the glass when I hold it really, really close to my face? Oh, it gets bigger. What happens when I move it further away? It looks smaller. It's the same glass. It's literally the same size, but whatever we allow ourselves to focus on becomes bigger. And I encourage you to focus less on competition and more on collaboration. I love Bonnie's advice on this and I'm in full agreement, Mark. And the uh, piece I would add in here is what you would do, assuming you do, have this person be a little bit less of your focus and you're not putting as much time and energy because as Bonnie pointed out, they're not, it sounds like they're not really a great results partner. They're not someone that's probably going to make you better is where then do you put that time and energy? The thing that's a little troubling that you wrote in your message here that I'll go back and read again. My current approach is to keep doing what I'm doing and get on with the good work I'm delivering and let it speak for itself. Good work alone speaking for itself generally isn't enough in most organizations. I would go a step beyond that and take the time and energy that you might be thinking about with this relationship and instead put that other places. I'm curious, what do senior leaders care about in your organization? What's the business case right now of the things you're working on? How much time and energy are you spending connecting with them? How much do you understand what's important to them about how your boss, your boss's boss gets measured on performance right now. That's where I'd spend my time because the challenge you may or may not have in the future with being this person's manager is going to be a secondary <laughs> a secondary consideration to the primary consideration of what do you do to position yourself for this next opportunity? And I think getting in front of senior leaders, understanding the business case, that's going on right now, and also getting insights on your strengths and also where may your opportunities be would be ideal because that's going to be probably the decision point for your next advancement or promotion. And I would recommend episode 526 that goes into a ton of detail on this. May Bush and I talked about making the case for your promotion, and we talk in detail about how you would approach this. And one of the things that I really think was wise that she said in that conversation is spending some time recognizing the things you really do well. And oftentimes, those true strengths are things that we don't often see in ourselves because we're too close to it. This is where a different peer, a trusted peer, or a boss, or a spouse even can be really helpful of sometimes surfacing some of those strengths that you may socialize those more within the organization, but also that you might start thinking about what would be the thing that would hold me back from being considered for this role? If I was my boss, if I was my boss's boss, if I was the CEO, whoever the decision maker is, what would be the thing that would be concerning to that person? about you being in the next role. And if you don't know what that is, spending some time starting to think about that and surface that and maybe talking about that with a trusted colleague or a spouse or a peer uh, who can help you to start to surface some of those things would be useful. And then as May talked about in that conversation, you start to then really create a narrative 
that addresses some of those issues and concerns. And the example she gave is that working in senior leadership, she had the perception in her organization, right or wrong, that people would be concerned that because she had a young family, she may not be committed to the organization long term. So she would often say things like, hey, I really am excited about being here for the long term. And she would point out to colleagues that she was the primary breadwinner in her family. And those were things that she decided because she thought that perception was there as a reason she may not be elevated to the next position to be able to proactively start to have those kinds of conversations in advance. And so I think your work here, Mark, is not so much with your colleague. That time may come, right? And then you really will be talking about managing former peers. But your work right now is how do you build relationships and make the case to others in the organization who are the decision makers? And how do you lead to support the business case of the organization? And if you spend your time and energy there, I think that will get you to where you want to go. And then you'll have the good problem of now, if I am supervising this person, how would I make that transition and do that in a real proactive way? So I hope that gives you something to start with as next steps. And I'd love to hear what happens, Mark. Let us know. This next question is from Geraldine, and she writes, just wanted to say that I absolutely love your show. Thank you so much for saying that. That that was me saying that last part. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Glad you clarified. <laughs> My only wish is that you would bring the public service component into your episodes. I conduct professional development for public employees, especially law enforcement, and sometimes our reality is a little different, mainly because we can't get rid of poor performers. Geraldine, thank you so much for this question. I so appreciate it. And I do know the reality is different in some organizations because employees in city government have different protections. Uh, Employees in unions have different protections. Military, higher education has tenure. There are all kinds of systems in different industries that support protecting employees from practices where in the past organizations have done things that have not been fair to employees. And so you have these systems that have been put in place that provide protections and to provide support to help the organization to be successful. These systems, however, none of them are intended to protect poor performers. Now, I know the reality is that that does sometimes happen, that these systems are utilized and there's politics and there's bad behavior And the net effect is that sometimes it shields poor performers from management being able to take action as quickly and decisively and being able to move forward in in situations to help the organization as a whole. That said, I think that in the situations that I can think of where I've worked with leaders in these situations where it is a union shop or there's tenure protections or insert situation here, that... A lot of times, managers look at that situation and they say, well, realistically, I'm not going to be able to exit this person from the organization. So my tendency then is to swing the other way and not really do very much at all. And I think that that is mostly a mistake. And every organization is different. Politics is different everywhere, of course. But I think that tendency to put that in the bucket of, well, this person's a poor performer and we, we're realistically not going to be able to exit them. Or if we did exit them, it's going to take years. So I'm not going to take any action at all. 
And I think the invitation I would have in that case, Geraldine, is to start with the accountability dial from Jonathan Raymond of are you spending time starting to make mentions? Are you setting expectations about what a person's role and contributions are supposed to be? And oftentimes, when this conversation comes up in our academy and with clients, the reality is is that there's hardly any feedback that's happening. There's not a, let's talk about what the expectations of this role are. Let's have some sort of regular conversation and feedback happening. Very little of that is being done. And there's a lot that you can do prior to exiting someone from an organization or removing someone from a role. And just because you can't do that last piece doesn't necessarily mean there's not a lot of work to be done in the meantime. So I think really looking at this, one of the things I love that Bonnie always points out is to avoid binary thinking of this is kind of an all or nothing thing. So I think there's a lot of ways you can approach that. And I know that this is challenging, especially I'm thinking of some of the leaders I've worked with who have inherited situations with employees. Someone has come in and they've been 20 years in the organization and they've got five or 10 years to go before retirement. They're a protected employee for whatever reason, whatever system. And past managers have not really addressed problems. And so this has been ongoing for a long time. And I don't mean to make this sound like an easy situation to handle because that's not. I think it's one of the hardest situations to handle is to inherit a situation where someone's been a poor performer and all of a sudden, and they've got decent performance reviews for the last 15, 20 years. And all of a sudden you come in and realize that this person's performance has never really been addressed. That's super hard. That's one of the hardest conversations that I think leaders have. And I think that we owe it to ourselves and our organizations to start addressing that. And yes, maybe it's a long-term process. And yes, maybe it's uncomfortable. And yes, maybe you need to spend some time getting buy-in from other stakeholders in the organization. But doing something to begin to move the needle, I think, is not only helpful to them ultimately, but you and the whole organization, if you can do that. Um, The other thing that I would point out here, Geraldine, is that I think sometimes from a management standpoint, we look at what the researchers call legitimate power. Legitimate power is I am your boss and I have some power over you to do certain things. And every organization has people who are in roles of legitimate power. Most of the leaders I know who I would consider effective are people who do not rely on legitimate power and use it sparingly, if at all, and use it as an absolute last resort. And they look to other ways to use power through their expertise, through persuasion, through organizational politics, through their relationships. There's a lot of places that you can go that actually I think are way more effective in the long run on power and influence than the legitimate power or pulling rank or whatever whatever version it might be called in your organization. So, um, so I hope this is helpful to you and others who may be thinking about this. And we did an episode a while back on all the different kinds of power. Um, I don't remember the number off the top of my head here, but I'll put it in the notes because that might be a useful place to start from and to be thinking about how you can approach this. And I'm curious if Bonnie has any thoughts on this too. Bonnie, you work in an organization where folks have protection for tenure. You are a tenure tenured professor. Uh, anything additional or anything I'm missing? 
There was one other layer of the question that popped out at me, and it's because I happen to despise this type of training uh, as one who has sometimes needed to offer this type of training as well as participate in it, and that is compliance training. So whenever you have people who are required to participate in the kind of professional development opportunities that it sounds like you offer, boy, that is rough because when you have people who don't want to be there, um, the other the other challenge is that any time that you show up to offer professional development, not only are you showing up as yourself, but you're showing up as every person who has ever offered compliance training for this group in the past. So they're carrying with them their history, oftentimes bad experiences of having to go to something and participate in something that they don't value. That's something that I see come up a lot. Anytime that you can bring in experts, so I actually, this is, by the way, not a lot of my expertise, but I was part of a project once that that was creating professional development for law enforcement. So anytime you can bring in the experts who are in the field, I know if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, it might surprise you that I have not actually worked in law enforcement myself. But so bring in those experts. How can you gain credibility and relevance by inviting other people to be a part of it, unless you you offer that yourself, which you don't specify here. But that's a great opportunity to do it. And what are the ways in which we can sort of break those norms, help people unlearn what they have perhaps learned in prior experiences? So is it that I just am supposed to show up and not say anything and just sit back and listen to someone talk at me? You know, can we go about breaking those norms? By the way, I wouldn't suggest 100% of like trying to break that, that norm all at once if this is something that you do regularly, which it sounds like it is. Over time, can you begin to have these more of a co-created kind of experience? Or at the very least, what ways in which can you use feedback in order to make them more valuable, more relevant, more engaging over time? And as Dave said, none of this is easy. It's not easy, especially when people feel like they're mandated to be there, which they often are. And my hat goes off to you for having this as a part of your role. I know it can be really challenging. I also know it can be done well. And I'm so glad that you wrote in to inquire about this. And we'd love to hear how any of this advice shapes your thinking and and what happens from here on out. Our next question is from Samuel. Samuel wrote in and said, I'm curious if there are any resources on building personal capacity. By personal capacity, I mean ability, mental stamina, and physical wellness. Today, I have oversight of two divisions with opportunities for more on the way. Thanks, and what you're doing is awesome. Well, thank you so much, Samuel. Uh, Bonnie, any thoughts on personal capacity as, as uh, he defines it? I have two broad categories for you to think of. One is sort of taking care of your own production capacity. So in the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the seventh habit is sharpen the saw. And this comes from Stephen Covey, by the way. Stephen Covey talked about that if we want to be able to produce and be effective at doing that, we're going to need to also focus on our capacity 
to produce. So he has a formula about P, which is the production, and then PC, which is the protection capacity. And if we don't take those times to rest, to renew, to recharge, to think in metacognitive ways, as in to think about our thinking, to think about our learning, to think about our work, that we're not going to be as effective as we need to be. And within that whole category of things, within the the production capacity, or you call it personal capacity, I think a lot about the power of both exercise and very related sleep. I don't tend to have as much of a problem on the sleep front, although occasionally I do, but the the exercise, I can tell you the times in my life where I have been very disciplined about that and how much more energy it gives me, how much insight it gives me. And I know it's not just me, by the way, Dave, this kind of works for everyone. Just the importance of taking care of our bodies, which part of taking care of our bodies helps our minds be more able to produce and have a lot of capacity. The second category is related. It does have to do with caring for our mind. And I'd like to start out by quoting someone named David Allen, who wrote a wonderful book called Getting Things Done. And in Getting Things Done, he talks about our mind. What is our mind good at? What is our mind not good at? And one of the things our mind is not great at, for example, is like remembering what you need to buy at the grocery list. And as Dave and I started out this episode, we shared about going camping in air quotes. And let's just say, I'm not going to go into a lot of details here, but both of us forgot really silly things that were pretty essential for the trip. Despite our checklists. (laughs) Yes. I mean, yeah, that's the funny part is we both have checklists. The checklist, like I had it out, but then just getting it into the bag was what really stopped me. So anyway, he, he talks about our mind not being good at like remembering things like that. And by the way, you can make your mind better at it if you need to. There's all kinds of ways to be able to have that short term memory get improved. But why not just make a list (laughs) rather than try to remember those things? So he says in that book, our mind is for having ideas, not holding them. So those are two things, taking care of our bodies, which part of that is taking care of our minds. And a second is to use our mind for what it's good at, for having ideas, not trying to hold on to them and being more reactionary and, and being more unable to handle a lot of differing commitments that all happen in different orders. And, you know, it's, I'll, I'll often, I, by the way, I, I teach a class called personal leadership and productivity. And oftentimes, Dave, I'll have students who will say, well, I can just remember it all in my head. And they're really smart and they most often can. So I try to work with them and explain, you know, as soon as you don't have a syllabus that's managing your life, but you've got multiple projects, many of which you have to take shape and decide what that next action is. It's not provided to you in as descriptive of a way, then these systems are going to allow you to expand your personal capacity. And I'm, I'm really glad that you wrote in with this question because it's wise to be thinking about that. That is something that Dave and I get asked pretty frequently. How do you do it? How are you parents and and partners and 
also professional. And and oftentimes my answer is, first of all, it's not as good as it looks because we forget things when, when we go camping. You know, you don't always hear about our failures, although I hope you sometimes do hear about our failures. But uh, secondarily, because we both have systems that we trust, we'll be able to record our commitments and allow us to follow through on them. Samuel, uh, yes to everything Bonnie just said, and I'll add in as well. The uh, I think one of the things that I see senior leaders do really effectively is they've learned how to prioritize and say no. They've also learned how to delegate well, and that seems to be a continual focus and opportunity for many leaders at all levels. So that is a opportunity there to get better at. Even if you're already good at that, I think there's the opportunity to delegate more, not only to take things off your plate as you begin to move up in the organization, but perhaps as importantly, if not more so, to be able to develop the skill and capacity in others. Succession planning, of course, is a key competency for every leader. So uh, zeroing on that, the ability to say no, a couple episodes I'll mention at the end that will relate to that around delegation and saying, no, that might be good places for you. And then the final resource that I'd recommend, since you asked for resources, is a audio course that is on the website called How to Create Your Personal Vision. And if you have not done something like this before of setting out a vision for two to three years and having a framework for where you're heading in your career and not only what does your career look like, but what do the personal things look like? What does your wellness look like? What does uh, wealth management look like for you? What do your hobbies look like? That would be perhaps a really interesting place to start to begin to create a framework for that. And that's free on the website as an audio course. It's called How to Create Your Personal Vision, a link to it. So if that's helpful to you as a starting point to begin to put a framework around that uh, in a structured way. Uh, we do that within our academy community all the time uh, with our members, and it really helps to create the big picture. And then once you have the big picture, it's a lot easier to make tactical decisions on a daily and weekly basis on the where to go next. And since Bonnie mentioned David Allen earlier, I love his concept of, you know, we only have two problems generally. The problems are where are we heading? And then the second problem is what's the next step? And a vision often will clarify both of those, not only the where you're going, but then the what's next. And that's a lot easier if you have the larger context. So hope that's helpful to you, Samuel. And uh, let's see if we can take one more question here from James. James writes, I was wondering if you were aware of a leadership body of knowledge. I'm a member of the Project Management Institute, and they've created a body of knowledge called the PMBOK. I think it's PMBOK, but I'm not positive if that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. Guide, which is updated regularly to reflect the latest good practices in project management. Is there something similar for leadership? James, thank you so much for this question. I was not aware of this guide. I'm sure most of you who are involved in project management and with PMI are aware of it. So uh, I am not aware of a specific guide like this around leadership. And I suspect there's lots of reasons for that. Of course, leadership is such a broad topic that it would be probably hard to capture in one guide. And I generally don't think of leadership, when I think of the things we talk about on the show, I, I rarely think of it from a standpoint of best practices. And I think of it more from a phrase of useful practices. Because What's useful to one person in one situation may not be useful to another person in another situation because context matters a ton. There's so many variables that come under leadership. 
And so I don't think that there's many things under leadership that really truly fall under the best practice as in there's one way to do it. And I, I try to approach that from this show and having experts on of not presenting anyone who comes on the show as an expert or this is the definitive truth on anything, but rather a how can I help surface their work for you listening and to then have you walk away from that conversation and say, okay, I heard 10 or 11 ideas. What's the one that's really useful to me right now, given where I am in my organization and in my team and in my own professional development, or maybe even occasionally listening to a conversation and saying, wow, that's really interesting to hear that expert on this particular topic, and that wouldn't work for me in our organization, and I'm actually going to head a different direction. And that's where I think a lot of judgment comes in, and this is where the art of leadership comes in. That said, there are a couple of books that I really like that I think capture the spirit of what you're asking. The Probably the closest book that I know of that would be the kind of book that I think provides at a very high level the, if I was going to hand someone who was in a leadership role one book that gave a overall look at, here are the essential things, the foundational things that most leaders are going to need. I think the leadership challenge by Kuzis and Posner is probably the best book that does that. It's in its, uh, I think, sixth edition now. They have done a wonderful job over years of really looking at, it's very grounded in research, but they also do research on what I would call everyday leaders. They don't research celebrities and Fortune 500 CEOs. They research the people who are in organizations every day, out in all kinds of different industries, and looking at what do leaders do that's effective. And they've come down to, I think, five practices, and there's a couple of sub-practices under each one. If I was going to read one book that provided an overall survey of what would be useful for a leader to know, that book, I think, would be a wonderful starting point. There are better books that are better on those individual components because they go into much more detail, and we cover a lot of them on the show. But as a broad brushstroke, The Leadership Challenge is a wonderful starting point for that. Another book that captures even more of what I would call the heart of leadership is a book called Leadership and Self-Deception. It's published by the Arbinger Institute. I think it's a fabulous book that captures the heart of where I try to lead from, and I think most leaders want to lead from. It's a fable story, but it is so powerful. It's not a book I hear referenced very much, but it's such an incredibly powerful read that if you're not familiar with, or if you are looking for something to pass along to someone who's entering into a leadership role for the first time, I think that book is a wonderful place to start. And then uh, the final book that I would consider also is about human relationships, which of course is so much a part of leadership and management, and that's Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's an old book. The examples are dated, and yet there is so much there that I continually pull on from my time working at Dale Carnegie. Uh, The principles have been so helpful to me in being able to work effectively and to be able to build relationships, and I pull upon them every day. Uh, I don't think it's the definitive guide by any means, but I think if you haven't read that book, I think it would be a wonderful foundation for starting to think about human relationships and how you can really utilize that as tools to then do all of the things that we talk about, about leadership and management on the show. Uh, Bonnie, what comes up for you on this? 
Dave stressed how broad the field of leadership is, which is why I think there isn't a definitive source for this type of information. A couple of associations I'm familiar with, one is called the Center for Creative Leadership. A second is called the Greenleaf Center for Servant Leadership. They tend to be derived out of the experts, the author's work. And so Greenleaf came up with the framework for servant leadership. So that's how that group came about and a similar story around the Center for Creative Leadership. And then sometimes you'll see associations instead of being formed around a writer's or an expert's leadership framework, you'll see them being formed around a particular context in which leadership is displayed. And the one I'm thinking of, Dave, is the Society for Human Resource Management They do have a certification for senior HR leaders that has a leadership component in it. But yeah, I think because it's such a broad field, it doesn't work the same way that the Project Management Institute would. And of course, even then, you do start to see other emerging types of project management frameworks and, you know, So I I even suspect that people who are project managers, experts of all experts, would would even say, yeah, that one gets us most of the way there, but there are some holes missing because it really is hard to encapsulate these things in one tool, but it does look amazing. And and one that I also had not visited in many, many years, and I'm looking forward to going back and, and being able to make that resource available to the people I lead as well. So thanks for writing in. Bonnie and I mentioned a number of books and resources in today's conversation. You can find links to all of those on the episode notes or also be linked up, of course, in this week's weekly leadership guide coming your way. Several other episodes that also will be helpful to you if today's conversation and questions are sparking some new ideas. I'd recommend, first of all, episode 154, Eight Ways to Use Power for Good. I mentioned in our response to the question from Geraldine that uh, we tend to sometimes as leaders think about only legitimate power and not all the other versions of power that are available to us to do good within the organization. And in fact, many of them work better than legitimate power in most situations. Episode 154 is a deep dive on the different kinds of power and how you may utilize those different frameworks in order to do good for the organization and, of course, for you too. Also recommended is episode 464, How to Balance Care and Accountability When Leading Remotely. Jonathan Raymond was my guest on that episode. We talked in detail about the accountability dial, which we mentioned in this episode as well. If you are looking, like me, to become more effective at helping people to stay accountable and having a good practice and resource for that ongoing, the accountability dial is a wonderful way to start. Episode 464 for the details on that. Uh, We mentioned earlier the value of saying no. How to Say No Without Saying No was the title of episode 471 with Lois Frankel. A lot of details there on if you're trying to get better at saying no in a professional way. Uh, She walks us through a number of different examples in that episode, some real practical things you can do that will help you to get traction and also how to say it in a way that is effective and 
professional. And then finally, I mentioned how to create your personal vision, the free audio course that's available on the website. If that is something that's of interest to you, uh, you'll find a link to that in the episode notes as well. Uh, For access to that free audio course, plus all of the other resources and episodes that I've mentioned today, searchable by topic, the very best place to go is to go to the coachingforleaders.com website. And if you haven't already, set up your free membership. That will give you access to the weekly leadership guide that comes with links to all the episodes and resources every single week. In addition, it'll open up access to the entire library since 2011, searchable by topic, plus all the free audio courses, my own personal library, the member cast, plus a ton more inside of the free membership. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go to get that set up. It takes just a few seconds and you'll have full access to all of that uh, inside our community here. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Harvard professor and trust expert Sandra Sutcher to the show. She is going to be teaching us what the research says on how to give a genuine apology. Join me for that conversation with Sandra next week and have a fabulous week.